a cane rod is like, you know, like throwing the keys to that sports car away and walking down the road or walking down a dirt trail or jumping on a horseback. Like, it's just, you're going to see more. It is slower action rod. Even fast bamboo is going to be slow um, comparatively to fast um, synthetic rods. But um, that there is a level of feel, like there is a subtlety in the feel that, you know, that any experienced fly fisher would certainly recognize right away. Um, and that can translate into performance because you, you, do, you will feel more takes when the fish goes after a fly. Welcome to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, featuring interviews with passionate people within the fly fishing industry. We focus on guides, conservation, resort managers, gear, and talented fly tires bringing usable information to fly fishers. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by The Fly Crate. Theflycrate.com is your source for all things fly fishing. The Fly Crate offers a monthly fly club. We select patterns every month for your home waters. With membership, you'll receive flies created to match the hatch in your area, along with the Fly Crate's guide magazine, the convenience of having flies delivered right to your door, some sweet stickers. Discover new patterns and start stocking your fly boxes now. Theflycrate.com. Here's your host, Mark Hopley. Welcome to this edition of the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Today is really our pleasure to have on the program Jimmy Watts of Shuxen Rod Company, now crafter of split cane fly rods out of Bellingham, Washington. Jimmy, thanks thanks so much for coming on the program today. Appreciate it. I appreciate you um, having me on. Yeah, well, I've been trying to uh, do a little homework and, and find out about all things Shuxen and your fly fishing uh, in the Washington State area. Um, maybe... I always like to start the show off, kind of take it back to your roots in fly fishing before we get into your beautiful handcrafted rods. How did you come to discover fly fishing, Jimmy? Um, I, well, I can, I can trace it back as far as you want to go. I, I remember my very first fly fishing experience was over in the Bob Marshall Wilderness Area, a just crazy beautiful spot over in Montana. Um, I was 14 at the time, and... Um, so that would be, I guess you could consider that ground zero, but I grew up, I grew up in the inland Northwest, probably a hundred mile stretch of country between, um, say between Spokane and Missoula was kind of, was kind of my playground from ages of, you know, birth until 18 had a really outdoor oriented dad, um, who took me out in the woods all the time. And we went backpacking all the time, you know, I'm not just in the summer, but you know, we kind of had this goal of going out twice a month sleeping outside twice a month, you know, usually two weekends kind of thing, you know? And so as a consequence of just putting a backpack on and hiking up to some lake, you know, end up going past trout rivers and trout streams and small, you know, alpine trout lakes, which is just a perfect little nursery for a young fly fisher. Fly fishing was never like, it really was just a way to just, just something to do when we were out there. It was a way to maybe catch a little bit of food for dinner um, and it was fun, you know, it was, it was, it was engaging. It was more fun than just, you know, plopping a bobber out into some still water and watching it. What would you consider your home waters now? I realize you're in the Bellingham, Washington area, but like kind of where, where's your water you're most comfortable in right now? Yeah. Uh, still that same stretch of land, believe it or not. Um, I moved to, 
you know, to Western Washington when I was about 20. Um, and it's a totally different river system over here. Um, as, as most of you or your listeners would know, like we're right over here, we're dealing with primarily steelhead and salmon rivers and big rivers, you know, that drain into saltwater. And quite honestly, while I love to go out and fish these rivers, um, it's, it's so unnatural to me. It's because it's, it's, it still feels so new that I'm still wrapping my hands around how to catch these, these incredible fish that are over here in Western Washington. Hmm. But my, my closest river, the closest river I can kind of just like pick up and go to for half a day that everyone, um, recognizes is the Skagit. It's just about 20 miles from here. Um, about 20 miles from my door to the Skagit river. Yeah. That's some nice water for sure. Who would yes. you say has been, you may have already kind of touched on this, but in, in your opinion, Jimmy, who, who would be um, the biggest influence in your fly fishing to date? You know, there's, I, I certainly couldn't just peg it on one person. Um, fly fishing, like my, my, the influences for me for fly fishing, like there's a, there's a giant, like two handful scoop of people that they're, they're just, they're still central to my life. They're not just central to my fly fishing life. They're central to my life. But, um, you know, some of them, some of them are authors. Some of them are other fly fishers. Some of them, believe it or not, are, um, you know, just close friends that live down the street. Um, so yeah, I, I wish I could pay one person out, but, um, I couldn't, I remember, um, as a young kid already being interested in fly fishing, um, but I remember when the book, The River Y, ended up in my hands. I was a young high school student at the time. I love that book, The River Y, by author David James Duncan. That was an influential piece of you know, piece of art for the young me. Um, but, yeah, I don't, that's a tough one to answer, though, otherwise. Yeah, I think that's that's fair comment. I mean, it, it is hard to pick just one person, and I think it's pretty neat when you can be influenced by... Uh, a lot of different people from lots of different walks of life. It just makes makes things a little more interesting, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, you know, like the. Um, I hope I'm, hopefully I'm not taking this somewhere where you didn't want it to go, but maybe a dozen years ago, twelve or fifteen years ago, somewhere in there, I kind of had this this notion that I wanted to I wanted to make a a split cane bamboo fly rod, and this was like early, like two thousand, you know. 2003, 2004, five, somewhere in there. It's like the internet was really like, it was still pretty young. The ability to search stuff on the internet was still not really the primary source of getting information. And I had this, I had, I was aware of a documentary called trout grass, which was this beautiful gem of a, of a documentary about standard fly rods. And, um, the gentleman, in the documentary, this, this young guy who wasn't that much older than me, this, his name's Andy Royer, was in the documentary, and he was featured as the kind of the guy that, that got the bamboo for the bamboo fly rod makers around the United States. And I found out he lived in Seattle. And so I called him up, really just kind of like almost quite literally out of the, you know, the phone book, and um, you know, said, hey, you're, you're the bamboo guy. And at the time he was, he was the only guy that got bamboo for fly rod makers. Like anywhere, he, there's like one guy in the United States that got bamboo for fly rod guys. And it was this, this guy, Andy, I told him what I wanted to do. And, um, 
you know, I remember his response was like, you're just, you're crazy. Like making bamboo fly rods is like, that's nuts. Like it's, it's so, it's such a crazy obsession. And obviously he was saying it sort of facetiously, but he said he had, he knew this one guy that was down in Oregon that um, would probably teach me if I called him up. And um, this guy's name was Daryl Whitehead and called him up, you know, told him what I was doing. And he basically invited me down to his shop for a week and he and this guy named Chet Bellinger. And um, we made one split cane fly rod together and I came home and just started plugging away at it. So maybe that, that answers kind of your question a little bit too about influences, but. Maybe you can walk us through that process. Cause I, th- I think there's a, probably a lot of listeners that haven't had the pleasure of fishing and I'm one of them. I got to admit with a split cane rod, it's on my bucket list. Um, yeah. Maybe talk a little bit about that. Like what, wh- what's the difference? What, what kind of brings you to that genre, if you will? Like, yeah. Um, you know, well, the, I'll, I'll answer that with like, you know, everyone's going to have their, their reasons. Like I, I will say, I'll say the reason, the reason that I, that I dislike the most is there are, there are particular, there's a particular group of people out there that they want a bamboo fly rod because they think they're fancy and they think they're expensive. And, you know, there's, probably the guy that like you know drives a like a luxury sports car or something like that like those are all the wrong reasons to fish bamboo fly rod i think what appeals to most of us um that either do fish a cane rod or make cane rods or kind of have that like little hankering to like you know wet a line with a cane rod and see what it's all about is like it's a it's like there's a lot of, there's a, the, the appeal is like multi-layered. I mean, on the one hand, like there's an appeal to like, it's genuinely a crafted item, right? Like you can't, you can't like, can't mass produce cane fly rods. They're, they're generally speaking, they're made one at a time. You know, they may pass through a few hands as in the process, but they're not going to pass through more than a few hands. And, um, and so they have that, that sort of handmade, that handcrafted sort of quality to them, which, you know, that appeals to a lot of us, right? With anything in our life, any object really. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that's kind of nice. It, like what I always compare it to, to like the difference between like fishing, um, you know, just any old fly you picked up at a box store versus like when you fish a fly that either you tied or you fish a fly that like a friend of yours tied for you. Just, there's just, it's just as, it just adds another layer to the experience when you're on a river. Um, the other thing with cane rods though that does appeal is they are they're not indestructible but anything that potentially happens to it is repairable like if you break a tip or you snap a rod in half like that can be fixed and that rod so so in a sense like the rod will never die you know i mean you could break it you could break it multiple times and you could repair those fractures and the rod will just live on and so it kind of takes on that heirloom quality and that longevity quality, that sort of, that, that little, that something that's built into your relationship to a thing that spans time. Mm-hmm. That's kind of another level of meaning. I get one thing. I, I totally get the craftsmanship and I get, I get what I want to know is what does it feel like to cast it? Because I know, I know a few people that have them and they won't cast anything else. Um, but for the average person that's maybe using a, you know, a, a fast action ultralight graphite 
fly rod. Going split cane is, you know, it's a departure, but I get the feeling that it's something that once you do it, uh, becomes addictive. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it definitely slow. What it will do is it, it'll slow down the experience for you. I, you know, I have, and I certainly, I, I fish, I, and I still sometimes fish like really fast, like high performance graphite fly rods. And, um, and that's great. You know, that's akin to like just an incredibly fast sports car or just like something just, you know, insanely like just performance oriented. But a cane rod is like, you know, like throwing the keys to that sports car away and walking down the road or walking down a dirt trail or jumping on a horseback. Like it's just, you're going to see more. It is slower action rod. Even fast bamboo is going to be slow. Um, comparatively to fast, um, synthetic rods, Mm -hmm. but, um, that there is a level of feel, like there is a subtlety in the feel that, you know, that any experienced fly fisher would certainly recognize right away. Um, and that can translate into performance because you, you do, you will feel more takes when the fish goes after a fly. Right. Um, and then when you do land a fish, like you'll, I mean, it's kind of an artistic stretch to say you'd feel, you'll feel the heartbeat of the fish, but you, you'll feel so much more of the fish's movement without a doubt. Interesting. You probably break a lot less fish off too, because it's not as, you know, it's more forgiving, I would imagine. Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've done this experiment, um, on a handful of occasions where I've taken like a bamboo fly rod of mine that I've made and I've, you know, and I've, seated the ferrules together so it's, it's all strung up and I take the very tippy top of the bamboo fly rod and I, I bend it all the way down until it touches the you know the very butt of the rod making this sort of teardrop loop with the entire rod hmm. and I've done that and I've definitely like broken a cane rod but I do that just to just to sort of test it for my own for my own little like research brain like you can take a rod and you can actually bend it all the way back on itself um, a bamboo rod and not all tapers are going to allow you to do that, but hmm. that does illustrate to some extent how resilient those things are. I realize it's a, it's a long process, lots of hours. I guess what I'm curious about is when you start, Jimmy, so you've got the, you've got the raw Tonkin calm in front of you. Maybe just kind of describe, walk us through the process just a little bit for, for those of us that aren't familiar. Yeah, I'll give you the cursor over if you have any questions about like the specifics, we can go a little deeper, but so by and large like this is an entirely handmade object and by and large they're they're still ma- they're made identical identical to the way they were made um in let's just say mid mid 1800s. So, not a lot of machining, not a lot of fancy tooling, um a really simple a really simple process, but it's really time intensive and I budget myself from start to stop about 80 hours to, to make a rod. There is equipment out there. Um, there's milling equipment and there's some machining equipment out there today that can certainly speed that process up. Um, but I choose not to use it because I enjoy the slow process. But it starts with, like you said, a rock column of bamboo, a Tonkin bamboo. Tonkin, that's the region in China where this specific species grows. Okay. It's just, it's a species that has, it has all these qualities that lend itself perfectly to be, 
becoming a fly rod. You you would never be able to make a fly rod out of just any old species of bamboo that's you know growing in your backyard. And the first process, first step in the process is to is to heat treat it. So I use a flame. Um, some people use ovens, but you need to basically burn the bamboo, drives all the moisture out. It takes all the sugar and any of the sort of the cellulose, the content inside the cane, and um, and it hardens it. It, it drives the moisture out and it takes re- the remaining fibers and, and sort of crystallizes them, which is what gives, which ultimately is what's going to give the bamboo fly rod its its sort of snappiness, as opposed to just being a raw piece of, of grass. Um, and then you split it from there. There, bamboo fly rods can be made. We call we say we use a phrase split cane because um, these fly rods are actually a laminate of multiple strips of cane glued together. It's not just, you know, a stick of bamboo with some guides tied onto it and a tip on the end. Um, commonly, um, four, four strips or six strips. People have played around with using five or using eight, but, uh, um, I use, I, I, cho- I choose to make six, six strip bamboo fly rods. So you may, you, you sort of, it's hard to explain without, you know, looking at a picture, but Essentially, each strip is a triangle. It's an equilateral triangle. And when you put all six of these strips together, which are shaped lengthwise as a cross-section, they'd be shaped as a triangle. They, they form essentially a hexagon. And it's just a really, it's the, it's the triangle. It's the engineering of a, of a triangle. It's that truss construction. And the fact that these strips are all laminated together it just makes it a phenomenally strong lever. Usually somewhere in the neighborhood of seven to eight feet is kind of a common length. Um, you know, you could probably do a six foot bamboo fly rod. You could probably do a nine foot, but, or I know you can actually, but seven to eight feet is kind of your common length. And once those strips are all planed out with uh, just a simple hand plane and the shapes are all equal to each other and the taper, which is engineered, is designed, the sort of the taper meaning the sort of the fat at the base of the rod to the skinnier as you get to the tip top. Um, those strips are all glued together, and, and from there, it's kind of your, the finished work. You sand off all the extra glue, you wrap your guides on, um, as you would any other fly rod. You varnish the guides, you varnish the rod, um, and at that point, essentially, it's, you have a, you've got a fly rod to fish. We're chatting today with Jimmy Watts of Shuxan Rod Company, crafter of split cane rods out of Bellingham, Washington. Just, it's kind of nice to hear you put that process out there because, I I mean, I have done some reading and and it's something I don't know a lot about and I I definitely am very interested in it because I liked your analogy when you said it's kind of the difference between (laughs) buying a commercially tied fly that, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of or actually going out and spending the time and crafting something yourself. I think there's a lot of... uh, integrity in that yeah and you know like um what it also is is like a lot of people i know that you know a lot of fly fishing um friends of mine is like you're always trying to like make this i mean the experience is already fantastic right you're 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 stream side on a river in a beautiful setting and you've got this sort of like this challenge of catching a fish and you know your mind's just occupied on so many levels but we're always trying to like, you know, make this experience as authentic as possible. And, you know, so we, t- so a lot of us tie our own flies or we tie flies for our friends. You know, there's people, there's some people out there that, you know, they have this, they, they build their own drift boat. Um, 
you know, and then there's guys like me that just, they want to make, you know, it will, there's out there are people out there that even make their own graphite rods or they'll buy a blank and they'll finish the rod out themselves. But mm-hmm. Yeah. Making, making like making bamboo fly rods, not just for myself, but for other people. Like it is, it's akin to tying flies. It's a little more involved in time and time, uh, in energy sense, but the end result is the same. And, um, I certainly made fly rods for friends, um, you know, as a gift. And it gives me like tremendous joy just to know that like they're out there fishing somewhere. I have no idea when or where, but the fact that they're holding a rod that, that I made for them, like that makes me happy. I, you strike me as a, a person that is, has a lot of passion. Pretty much everything you seem to do is 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 driven by that. Uh, I, I say that because just even reading your website, some of the verbiage, it was like reading a, a novel a little bit to me. And I, I want to kind of switch gears on you, Jimmy, and talk about that part of your life as far as um, writing and, and some of maybe the authors you enjoy reading about. Because uh, I got to compliment you on, on that. Uh, your writing... It seems oh. like, do you do writing yourself commercially or just for, explain that process? Yeah. Um, well, like I mentioned earlier, I mean, I've, I've kind of always been an obsessive reader and, um, and my, my taste in reading is all over the map. Like if you looked at like the hutch down in our living room, you know, you'd be like, this guy's tastes are all over the place. <laughs> um, I almost, you know, I almost always have a few books going at a time. Um, everything, everything from like corny pop stuff to, you know, books of poetry to lots of, I, I really like nonfiction, but I do write a lot. Like, you know, I mean, I still, I, you know, as far as, as far as writing commercially goes, believe it or not, I've only, I've only ever sold one article um, that appeared in the Drake uh, magazine last summer. And it, that was really um, nice to have that story put in the Drake. It was really, it was a really um, personal story for me um, and for our community here in Bellingham and Tom by at the Drake. I'm ever, ever grateful to him that he ran that. It was their um, 20th anniversary edition. So it was a, a big summer edition. And, um, you know, and I, I toy with the idea of like writing a book, but, um, you know, we'll see. Largely, most of my writing is, is private, personal, and, hmm. and I do write a lot of letters too. I write I write a lot of letters to um, still, believe it or not. This is totally out in left field, but have you got anything nearby you could maybe kind of read a little excerpt from? Oh, you know, um, I believe it or not, I don't. You know, my a lot of my writing, a lot of my writing is journaling. A lot of it's like notebook, just jot down thoughts that pop in my head. I think, oh, that would that would make it good that would make a good story or that would make, you know, a good poem or something. But I was going to say, I try to put stuff from time to time up on, on my sort of like my website, mm-hmm. uh, um, you know, which is kind of funny too, because, you know, websites and web addresses, it's really like, they've really taken a backseat to social media, which I, I don't have a, a large presence there. I have, you know, I have an Instagram account and that's it. And I look at that, you know, maybe every few days, but the you know, websites have kind of, it kind of gone the way of like, it's like a, like a mom and pop store on some country back road. But, um, I try to put some stuff up there and, and I bounce, I have some friends that are, that are, um, creatively inclined. I'll send stuff to them. Just, you know, 
stuff I wrote. Yeah, I just I was blown away by. It. I'm just going to read the first part, and this this kind of tells a little bit about you, and I think where you're coming from uh, from your website. It says I earn a living and a life hanging onto a busy Seattle fire truck, and from splitting and wrapping bamboo into fly rods. It's a stretch to identify my work self as anything more than a tradesman, certainly not an artist. You say a, a blue-collar life. I have to shower after work, not before. At the same time, there's some impulse towards art, the attempt to mend ideals, aesthetics, and craft into something of value and use and to make it beautiful. I just, I, I thought that was pretty cool. Oh, I, that's really nice of you to say, man. Yeah, it's true. You know, for a while, for a long while, I've been a fireman down in Seattle. I worked downtown there um, for nearly 20 years now. I'm 40, we 43 this year. And, um, you know, I, that's, I've, that's been a huge chunk of my life. And, um, and ever since I've worked down there, like I've always had, I've always been like, I just want to go to the busiest, craziest firehouse. And I want to go on as many calls as I can. And, um, I've done that. I've done that for the last 20 years. It's totally impossible to separate that, um, those experiences from, what I do with fly fishing and fly rods and stuff like that. And I even tried to try to illustrate that in the, in the piece that I wrote for the Drake last summer. Um, yeah. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? I know that was, or do you want to go there? No, I, I happy to, I, but you know, it, it is, it is just simply a, rea- a reality. Like, um, I, you know, one, the one thing that's hard to separate out is firehouse life is like, I mean, I totally love it. I absolutely love it, but it is like, it's a rough and tumble alpha male, you know, like just a bunch of hard chargers. No, I mean, I, like I'm a worker. I am definitely a worker. Like, I mean, making bamboo fly rods is like, I mean, it's like working in a wood shop and, you know, running a dozen alarms a day as a fireman in Seattle, um, or more. It's like at the end of the day, I'm just a mess. Um, my wife jokes, I must take, she, I, she says I take more showers than anyone she knows. I, I, I swear to God, I, we remodeled our kitchen, our, our bathroom actually like seven or eight years ago. And I was like, I just want, I want a giant shower that I can just walk into and walk out of <laughs> without touching a thing. Um, so I can just get in and out of there as quick as possible. It's interesting to me because you got kind of worlds colliding there, right? You got your, your craft of the split cane bamboo, which I'm sure kind of, takes you away from that a little bit your time on the water and then your time at the hall there's you know it's a pretty complete circle there if you ask me yeah it is it is a complete circle and um i was starting to say and i lost my thought but i found it again you know for a long while i really like compartmentalized these sort of aspects of my life you know like the fireman thing and the fly rod thing and you know you know even even some aspects of relationships that were peripheral to both of those um, and, and maybe they've always been, but they're absolutely like, they're not compartmentalized existences. They're, they're like, they're just, it's just a layered existence and they're totally intertwined and inseparable from each other. And, um, hmm. you know, I, I'm the same guy on a river as I am in a firehouse. And, um, that's not easy to do for a lot of people. I don't, yeah, maybe it might be, I can see, I mean, I can see how that can be that sort of identity shift can be troublesome for some people. There's, um, back to books, there's a, there's a line I love in, um, 
this book called Young Men in Fire, which was an unfinished book. If you're not familiar with it, it's an unfinished book by the author Norman McLean. Yeah. He wrote, he wrote A River Runs Through It, and which was his first book. He wrote as an, he wrote it as an old man. Um, but Norman McLean was writing his second book called Young Men in Fire when he passed away. So it was not entirely finished, but they still put it out there. It's, it's a beautiful book, as unfinished as it is. But he has a line in there that I love. and I, I'm kind of paraphrasing, but I might got it exactly right. He, he said, um, identity is not just a problem for the young. It's a problem all the time. And the nearest anyone can ever find himself at any given age is to find a story that somehow tells him something about himself. Hmm. And that's the quote. And it's very true for me. I mean, I'm sort of living a story. We all are, but I, I need to dive into books to somehow sometimes make sense of the whole thing. Do you do a lot of reading when you're on the river? Uh, no, I don't. You know, you know, I don't, I typically now, um, like, well, do you have a family? Are you married with like young kids or? Yeah. Yeah. I got, I got twin girls. Yeah, twin, 17. Twin girls that are 17. So, yeah, yeah. so this will resonate with you then, I think, to some extent. Um, a little bit different. I've got two boys. Um, one's 11, one's 12. And um, fishing, the actual, the act of actually like stringing up a fly rod and going to a river has really, I've deliberately really put it on, a, on the back burner to all the other things that go along with, you know, you know, having a family and having young kids and stuff like that. And so instead of like fishing much, I'm, you know, playing with boys, chasing them around soccer fields, you know, doing stuff with them as much as I can, you know, and then still, you know, earning a paycheck. Um, so I don't fish as much as I would used to, or as much as I will, I know down the road. Um, but so when I do fish, getting back to your question about reading. So when I do fish, like, it's like time focus, like let's go and let's fish. It's not, not a, not a lot of downtime to, you know, to sort of read or take long lunches. I often think about that though. Think about, I mean, I know you can't put out fires forever and, and firefighters at some point retire. You, it looks to me like you got a lot of career ahead of you with a split cane and your fishing and tying and everything else. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's kind of the perspective of, you know, of anyone as you're going through life, you're recognizing like, where am I at now? Where am I going to be? And, um, you know, I look down the road, like I said, I'm 43. Like I look down the road, like even 10 years. And I think like, man, my kids are going to be gone out of the house. Most likely, you know, like I'll probably be starting to wind down from working for the fire department. Like I'll have all this time. And I think to myself, like I'll fish, I'll fish a lot more then. Um, Mm -hmm or write a lot more then. So, um, and that's not, that's not postponing, you know, that's not me just like putting something off, you know, being lazy. That's just more like me, like telling myself, like there'll be time for that later. Right now. I want to, I mean, I want to be all in on being a dad, you know? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I get that. You seem to be, uh, all in on everything. I'm all in on everything. Yeah. I, I don't, you know, I've, I've always been, my mom, even as a kid growing up, my mom called me, I don't know if this is, I don't know if this really makes sense or not, but she, she called me the worm. And she said, because the early bird always gets the worm. Cause even as a kid, like to my memory, I was, I was always an early riser. Um, 
you know, and still to this day, I'm, I'm rarely up any later than five. I just, I just get up early. Um, you know, and I wind down on your website. It says I'm up at five almost every morning. Coffee always on hair, sometimes long, sometimes high and tight. I don't have a smartphone or cable television, and I keep the books piled high nearby. Yeah. I think that uh, kind of sums it up. Yeah, you know, um, it is. like I mean, I, I had a smartphone at some point in time. I had an iPhone, and there's a little bit of a backstory for how I got rid of it, but the end result is when I, when I, when I got this flip phone, I had so much more time and, um, in a day. You know, you just don't realize how much, how much of a distraction. I mean, it, a screen, this technology in general, and I'm not averse to technology at all. I mean, it has these phenomenal benefits. And, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm definitely efficient with my time. And one of the tools that I've always used, even as a kid, even, you know, even as a teenager, is I, I'm really good at eliminating um, stuff that's just wasting my time. Um, so, yeah. I haven't had, we haven't, you know, we haven't had cable TV. I, I think last time I had cable TV was when I left my parents' house. Yeah. I was 18. Um, That's kind of rare these days. It is kind of rare these days. I, it, it is. Um, I don't want to give the impression that we, I somehow live or my family, and I live like hermits. We are uh, far from it really. Mm-hmm. I, I like to ask my guests this kind of philosophical question about, about our pastime. If if there's something you could change about fly fishing, Jimmy, is there is there something that comes to mind? No, I you know like like when it comes to fly fishing, I thought it's easy to get cynical and go down the road of you know how do I say this? You know when something gets discovered, a lot of times it gets that much more attention, it gets that much more popular. And in my lifetime, I've you know, I've certainly seen rivers get more crowded. I've seen fisheries get exploited. Um, you know, I've seen my, my own, you know, my own town grow, you know, what was once woods is now a strip mall. And, um, it's easy for me with fly fishing to see how people can get cynical about that, but I don't let myself go there. Um, you know, when I see the changes that have happened with sort of the booming population of people that are holding fly rods now, I try to think of it like, it's just that many more people though that that actually care about our rivers, care about the environment, the health of our water. And yeah, maybe you got to venture out a little farther so you can find those secret spots that aren't crowded or they haven't been exploited yet. And I'm certainly, I'll be the first guy in line that won't tell you any of my secret fishing holes. <laughs> um, not, I won't hold it against, I, w- I won't hold that against anybody. Um, <laughs> yeah. If somebody wants to get their hands on a Shook Sand split cane fly rod, um, I'm sure you've got a list and I'm sure you've got a waiting list. Maybe you can speak to that a little bit. What, what's the process involved if, if somebody wants to have a rod made by you? Yeah, it's easy. Just, just give me a call, shoot me an email, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, there are plenty of people out there that, that make really nice flicking fly rods. Um, some are sort of like, some of them are small time builders, which I would consider myself a small time builder. Some of them, you know, the busiest builders that are going to be associated with sort of the big rod companies that everyone's heard of, those guys probably make, you know, 100 or 150 rods a year. Um, and that's more of a commercial operation. They probably have 
you know, five to 10 people in the shop working full time. So I don't, I never, I never like to separate myself out and say, you know, some one's better than the others or I'm better than the others. But to get a rod for me, you just have to, you just have to touch base with me and it'd be a custom rod in terms of, you know, what kind of water you're fishing, kind of fish you're going for, um, custom in the sense of picking out what, what your finish, what the finished rod you want to look like. Um, and I do some engraving work to kind of customize it a little further. Something I'm always curious about, how, how do you put, I noticed you put, you can put somebody's name on the fly rod. Obviously you put your, your brand on there. How does that actually go on there? Is that burnt on there? No, it's actually just, it's just a simple, um, engraving actually. I mean, it's really, it's like, um, like, like you would engrave, uh, a trophy for your, you know, your kid's soccer team or something like that. Yeah, it's really simple. There are some people that have taken, there are some fly rod makers out there. There's one in particular, um, that your listeners, if they haven't heard of oyster bamboo fly rods, he's taking engraving just to the next level and no one does it better than him. And his engraving alone is an absolute piece of art. What I do is really simple. Yeah, but I can tell you it's, it's, it is a work of art and I can tell the passion you put into it. If somebody wants to find your website, um, where are they finding you at on, on the internet? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Google, just do a simple Google search of shucks and bamboo fly rods would, would turn it up in a heartbeat. That's S H U K S H U K S A N rod company. Yes, that's exactly it. Can I, um, I just want to, before we let you go, I want to, I want you to paint a picture for us because I know you spend uh, a lot of time building these rods, but maybe you can describe for our listeners your perfect day on the water. What does that look like? Kind of when does that start in the morning? Kind of walk us through that a little bit. Um, okay. I'll let, I'm going to, I'm going to leave the players anonymous, but if they hear this, I'll know who they are. Um, perfect day on the water involves a uh, involves a group of friends that I'll, I'll just call them the spiritual rednecks. Um, we'd meet up. We'd meet up at David's house, and we there's about five of us. We'd uh, hit the water after a nice cup of coffee on his back deck, float some river in western Montana, and. Um, stop for a, a two or three hours siesta in the afternoon after polishing off a bottle of French wine and probably, uh, some kind of fine game that, um, my buddy Chris caught and smoked and we'd end up the day back at David's house, probably sitting around a bonfire. Each of us having caught way more fish than the other. At least that's the story. That's the story we'd be telling. I'm, I'm still laughing about spiritual rednecks. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I don't, I don't particularly, quite honestly, at this point in my life, I don't really enjoy fishing alone. Um, I, I guess maybe I prize my time on the water so much that there's a handful of people that I just would much rather be on the water with than alone. Um, and having grown up sort of in that stretch of, um, territory between Spokane and Missoula, um, my choice water would be somewhere over there. I got to ask you though, like mm-hmm. where's your, what's, I, I kind of know your neck of the woods where, um, where do you like to fish? Um, well, I'm like you, I don't like to throw out 
the names of too many places yeah, we yeah. go. Cause, but, Fair enough. I mean, I don't have a, a lot of rivers where I'm at. So um, there's a river called the Similkameen River that I spend a lot of time on. It doesn't see that many angler hours. Uh, we, we do a lot of drift trips on that, just in pontoon, just inflatable pontoon boats. So, yeah. you know, we're, we're chasing a lot of whitefish and uh, rainbows. There's some cutties in there, but mostly... Mostly, you know, small to medium-sized rainbows, nothing over a pound, pound and a half, but they're always fun in the, in the moving water. But on, to be quite yeah. honest, most, most of my time is spent on still water. So we're, we're not far from Kamloops. So, um, yeah, there's some, there's some massive fish in those lakes though. Oh, they're, they're, yeah, they're, they're hogs. I mean, we're usually using 10 foot rods, a lot of chronomid fishing, uh, a lot of strike indicators, a lot of, um, you know, there's some dry caddis and whatnot. Don't get me wrong, but I would say 80% of the fishing I do is with an indicator on still water for, uh-huh. um, you know, bigger fish for the most part. But, um, we've got some pretty productive lakes up here with, you know, fairly alkali water, lots of nitrogen, lots of feed. And, uh, if we get lucky and, and everything survives the winter, they usually grow pretty big. But I would say for a majority of people that are holding onto a fly rod, like it's not the fish, it's the experience, right? It's the, yeah. it's the everything but the fish that is the draw. And, and especially because it seems like a majority of the time we're, we throw the fish back anyways, you know? <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. And, um, and fly fishers sort of my sense is, you know, they're, they're typically more like, they're just generally a thoughtful group of people. You know, they, they they're environmentally inclined in the sense that they're, you know, they're tied into the water and they're tied into the environment mm-hmm. that surrounds it. And, and they want to, they want to do what needs to be done to keep the water clean and, you know, and cold. And they like reading, you know, they like to read, they like to write, they, they, they like wine. They like, you know, they, yeah. they just appreciate, not that they're materialistic, um, cause they're not, they appreciate nice things. You, you, know, you know what it's about for me? It's about savoring it. Like I, whether I'm savoring a glass of wine or I'm savoring, um, that time on the water or savoring that talk or the campfire. Yeah. It's like, um, it's a never ending experience. And for me, you never stop learning. Like, I mean, this comes up on the show all the time, but it's one thing, I mean, think how much you have learned just from making fly rods, like what that took. So then you throw, like, think, think how deep, if you wanted to go that deep into entomology, you could go down that road. You know what I mean? There's so many yeah. different ways you can go. I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm yeah. drawn to things that I never stop. You know, you never know at all. And that's, to me, that's cool. The more you pay attention to that stuff, you just, so much stuff just starts coming to life. Well, that's, you know what? And yeah, absolutely. A river is the same way. Think when you roll a rock, right? And then, and then, and then all of a sudden you start yeah. seeing the case caddis and all these little microorganisms that you didn't see when you're just walking by. But the second, like you take the minute to look at that sedge grass with a caddis on it or it just for me that changes yeah. and it's like a microcosm nobody even looks at that stuff you might notice a bald eagle flying overhead but when you look down there's i don't know i find this stuff really interesting speaking of that there's a bald there's a bald eagle out my window right now that's cool yeah um yeah I, you know and that that kind of not to continue on with what we're talking about but you know a lot of the decisions to just not have a smartphone or not have cable tv is like there's a lot of stuff that it really distracts our attention from 
I should say, I'll just speak personally. It distracts me from things that I want to pay attention to. And, um, and there's so much out there that we miss. There's so much stuff that we miss. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's just trying, it's trying to see more, see more of the stuff that's right in front of us. And so we can engage with it. And yeah, you're, I mean, you're totally right about the bugs on the rocks. I mean, it's the same with a hatch, you know, on the water, you, you you look at a hatch over water and, you know, the average person might not even see the hatch that's even happening. And you're, you see five or six different bugs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's, it's, um, it's never ending and it's, uh, it's good stuff. Well, listen, uh, Jimmy, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and, uh, encourage people to, uh, look you up and, uh, check out your amazing split cane rods you're making. Thank, thanks again for your time. That's nice of you to say, man. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by theflycrate.com. Thank you for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or topic you'd like discussed. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water. Mm-hmm.